The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Changing Disease Course for Patients with Pulmonary Hypertension, Expert Insights on Improving Diagnosis and Novel Approaches to Treat the Underlying Causes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UBN 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Valerie McLaughlin from the University of Michigan. Welcome to this educational activity on improving care for patients with pulmonary hypertension. Joining me in this discussion today is Awana Preston from Tufts University School of Medicine. Awana, thank you for joining. Val, happy to be here. Let's talk about our goals for today, to recognize the clinical presentation of pulmonary hypertension, to facilitate early and accurate diagnosis, to employ updated guidelines and criteria to diagnose pH promptly and perform appropriate disease monitoring, to discuss the need for alternative treatments for pH with novel mechanisms of action and their potential clinical implications, and lastly, to assess the latest clinical evidence regarding efficacy and safety of novel and emerging therapies for the treatment of pH. So let's talk about pulmonary hypertension and how it presents, Val. So Iwana, the classification of pulmonary hypertension was updated at the 2022 ERS-ESC guidelines, which were presented at ERS and ESC that year. What we're going to talk about most today is group one pulmonary arterial hypertension. And classically, that is idiopathic PAH without a particular cause. And some of those patients can be calcium channel blocker responders. There's also familial forms, heritable PAH, a number of genes have been identified that cause pulmonary arterial hypertension. There's drug and toxin induced, you know, the diet pills back in the day and more recently and um, methamphetamines are the most common cause of drug induced PAH. Um, there's PAH associated with a number of other disorders, most commonly connective tissue diseases such as scleroderma, but also HIV, portal hypertension, and congenital heart disease. And there are some unusual types of PAH that involve venous or capillaries, specifically PVOD or PCH. And really, group one is what we're going to focus on today. But particularly as we think about diagnosis, it's important to understand that group one PAH is not that common. And most of the pH that we see in clinic is either group two due to elevated left heart filling pressures, different types of left heart disease, or group three due to lung disease and hypoxia. Um, of course, group four pulmonary hypertension associated with PA obstructions is important to diagnose because the treatment is so different. So chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension may be cured by a surgical intervention. And then there's group five or pulmonary hypertension with unclear or multifactorial mechanisms, which is really a potpourri of different diagnoses. The hemodynamic definition of pulmonary hypertension was also revised in the 2022 ESC-ERS guidelines. Mainly, the difference is the pulmonary vascular resistance threshold has been lowered from 3 to 2. So precapillary pH is defined as a mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20, with a wedge pressure less than or equal to 15, and a pulmonary vascular resistance of greater than two. So that used to be greater than three. So that's a, that's a pretty big change. 
Isolated post-capillary pulmonary hypertension, so group two pulmonary hypertension, is now a mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20 and a wedge pressure greater than 15 with a PVR of less than two. And combined pre and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension is now defined as a mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20, a wedge pressure of greater than 15, and a pulmonary vascular resistance of greater than two wood units. So that's a bit of a change. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more, Iwana, as we talk about the treatment. Another thing that was changed in the definition was exercise pH was put back. And so over the years, this has been in, this has been out, different definitions, mean PA pressure of greater than 35 with exercise. Um, but I think what they did here was really good because it's not just the mean PA pressure, because it's actually normal for PA pressures to go up with exercise as your cardiac output goes up, but rather they defined exercise pH as the slope, the mean PA divided by cardiac output slope between rest and exercise of greater than three millimeters of mercury per liter per minute. So I, I actually think that is um, a nice way to think about exercise pH. So Val, let's go back to our patients and understand what are their symptoms when they present with pulmonary arterial hypertension. So the main symptom is dyspnea on exertion. They're short of breath when they do their regular activities. In more advanced cases, they're dyspneic when they're bending, when they're taking a shower, when they're toweling. Um, very, very seldom they have uh, hemoptysis, um, uh, nausea, weight gain uh, that can be due to fluid retention in advanced cases. Syncope is a, or pre-syncope with exertion is a very, very important sign and symptom that you need to be aware of in patients who have severe pulmonary hypertension. So let's look at physical uh, examination and clinical signs of patients with PAH. Um, they typically, if, they're, if the PAH is not advanced, they have very subtle physical signs, a loud pulmonic component of the second sound. Um, so you have to listen to their heart, to the second sound at the pulmonic and the aortic area. Um, but in more advanced cases, they have a jugular venous distension at 45 degrees. They may have ascites. They may have uh, liver uh, engorgement and hepatomegaly. They may have um, uh, lower extremity edema. But all in all, in non-decompensated pulmonary hypertension, you really, really have to look for signs um, on the physical exam for pH. In the compensated pH, you should look for right-sided failure signs. So there are challenges associated with diagnosis pH. It's a rare disease, but actually not so rare. I think we're missing out on a lot of our patients. We are um, um, relying on the primary care physicians and primary care uh, group to have an early examination. Um, even though it's a rare disease, uh, we want to uh, um, 
evaluate clinical assessment with clinical history, EKG biomarkers. Um, the only really serologic biomarker that we have available currently is BNP or NT pro BNP. Although not specific for pulmonary hypertension, it does connect with a stretch of the right heart. So it gives us an idea of how severe the pulmonary hypertension is. But the echocardiogram, I think, is an important key point to screen for pulmonary hypertension. Although it's not the ultimate diagnostic test, it's the ultimate screening test that uh, I, as a pulmonologist, rely on our cardiologists to look for not necessarily the left, although the left is important, but also to describe the right heart very, very accurately and in, in, in as much detail. Pulmonary function tests are very important to make sure that there is not uh, a severe interstitial or obstructive lung disease component that may affect the right heart. CPAT in young patients who, in whom we don't have a clear explanation of dyspnea and exertion is a very good tool. But really, ultimately, the diagnostic test, the final test to tell you whether there's a pulmonary hypertension or not is the right heart catheterization. Yeah, so Iwana, I think that's really key. We rely on the primary care providers a lot. Remember, these, these patients complain of shortness of breath, and you know, usually that's their first stop. So this is the updated diagnostic algorithm for suspected pulmonary hypertension from the ESC ERS guidelines. And again, it revolves around the general practitioner. So if someone is complaining of shortness of breath, you know, they do a history and EKG, physical biomarkers, saturations, and um, the, this divides it kind of into three categories. So for patients who you're really worried about that they have really serious group one PAH or CTEF, kind of fast track to the pH center. But then it kind of says, do you think it's more likely lung or do you think it's more likely heart? And then refer to cardiology or pulmonary with the rapid cross-referral as appropriate and, and identifying the pH probability. But Iwana, I want to talk a little bit more about echo because you brought that up as the, the first test to really sort of suspect pulmonary hypertension. And indeed, it's it's what gets most patients into our office door. Like they, they have an echo and someone is worried about pulmonary hypertension. And I think the ESC ERS guidelines did a really nice job elucidating how to evaluate a patient with an echocardiogram. Because I've said this for many years, and it's just really nicely spelled out here. Uh, there's so much more to the echo than what the estimated RVSP is. Remember, there can be errors made in estimating the RVSP. Those jets aren't always perfect. Sometimes they're technical factors. Sometimes they're factors of the person interpreting them, not not seeing the jet clearly and, and either estimating too high or too low. So the first step is just looking at what that peak TR velocity is, and that's used to calculate the RVSP based on the Bernoulli equation. So the new guidelines say if it's less than 2.8, you know, it's, it's low, we're not so worried about pH. If it's greater than 3.4, 
we're worried that that's a higher index of suspicion. And then 2.9 to 3.4 is kind of in the middle. But that's just the first step. The second step is the other pH signs based on 2D and Doppler. Things like right ventricular enlargement, right ventricular dysfunction, TAPSI, S prime, um, the notching, like there's the septal motion. There's so many other things we look at on echo. And so if you have those factors, even if the estimated RVSP was low, we might be more worried about pH. If you don't have those factors, we're less worried. And then this also says, maybe think about the patient, put it in context with the medical history. Is there a risk factor for PAH or CTEF? So then you end up with a probability based on both the patient's history and both components of the echo, the TR velocity and the other signs. And if it's high probability, it suggests you should go on to a right heart catheterization. If it's a more of an intermediate probability, um, you can do echo follow-up, but in some instances, you might still do a right heart catheterization. And if it's a lower probability, you should think about an alternative diagnosis or, or maybe follow with echo. So I think that's really a, a useful tool. Now, it's also important to remember thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. This is a potentially curable type of pulmonary hypertension, and you never want to miss this diagnosis. Uh, and we know that PEs are common in a small proportion, perhaps 3 or 4% of patients with an acute PE do not entirely resolve. And then you can go on to develop chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. It's important to remember that the study of choice to exclude chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is a ventilation perfusion scan. Spiral CTs, PE protocol CTs are great to look for acute PE in the right clinical setting, but they may miss patients with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So don't forget to order that ventilation perfusion scan as you're working the patient up. And then the right heart catheterization, as Dr. Preston said, is required for the actual diagnosis to confirm the echo findings. It's really critical to measure the left heart filling pressures because again, group two pulmonary hypertension is so, so common. Uh, we need to measure the cardiac output so we can calculate the pulmonary vascular resistance. Um, it's also important to look for shunts. So, you know, sometimes we find patients with ASDs or VSDs that were missed, and that's another potentially curable form of pulmonary hypertension. Um, it's important to establish the severity and the prognosis, and that will come into play as we talk about the therapy for pulmonary hypertension. And a small proportion of patients are going to respond to acute vasodilators and maybe candidates for calcium channel blockers. So that's also another point that's done at the right heart catheterization. Now, Iwana, this is like a really dry slide. It's a, you know, it's a table from the ESC ERS guidelines, but I think it's important. It really lists all of the measurements that need to be made at the time of a right heart catheterization. And some of them are measured, some of them are calculated, but I think this is really critical. I don't know about you, but I, I get really frustrated sometimes when I see patients who were referred in, they've already had a right heart cath, but they just had 
um, a mean PA pressure and a right atrial pressure measured, and there's no cardiac output or there's no wedge pressure, and then they have to have the cath again. So uh, it's really critical if, if you're going to do a right heart cath for PH to make sure you have all of the information that's needed to make the diagnosis and establish the severity. So let's talk about who should we screen for PAH. I think if there's a family history, um, it's, it's a very important to keep a close eye on the offsprings or uh, relatives of patients who have pulmonary arterial hypertension, especially the ones who have the BMPR2 mutation, uh, the first degree relatives of patients with hereditary PAH. I have a handful of these patients in my clinic. But also patients with scleroderma with mixed connective tissue disease, especially if they have scleroderma features, they are at risk of developing PAH. So they should be monitored on an annual basis to make sure they do not develop PAH. And if they do, we can intervene early. Now, for symptomatic patients, there are certain disorders that are associated with PAH, uh, such as uh, patients with portal hypertension, whether they have end-stage liver disease or just portal hypertension from other conditions. HIV infection is a high risk for developing of PAH and other connective tissue diseases that are not in the scleroderma spectrum. So, you know, once we diagnose pulmonary arterial hypertension group one, we have to ask ourselves, what's the risk of this patient, of our patient living at one year? What's the risk of them passing at one year? What's their chances of living longer life? We cannot have one parameter to assess this risk, but we have a multiple from biochemical markers to clinical assessment to exercise tests, whether they're maximal or submaximal, echocardiographic evaluations, as well as invasive hemodynamic evaluations. So put it in all together, we can have the help of score, risk score assessment, for example, with a reveal light to calculator, which is depicted here, where we can assign several points depending on BNP or NT-proBNP levels, walk test, functional class, just the plain systolic blood pressure and heart rate at rest, as well as the renal function. And coming up with a really num numeric score, we can have a sense of what's the uh, risk of these patients surviving or not surviving at one year. Yeah, and when a risk assessment is so, so important. And I, I say every time you interact with a patient is an opportunity to assess the risk. And we've learned so much over the years about the prognostic determinants of risk. And this is the table that was put in the 2022 ERS ESC guidelines. Um, it gets updated as we get more information and it kind of gives the indicator and then what is a low risk value for that? What's a high risk value? What's an intermediate risk value? And low risk being a less than 5% chance of death at one year, high risk being greater than 20% 
an intermediate with this very wide range of five to 20%. So uh, a number of things that we think about that we assess when we see patients, their progression of symptoms, their right heart failure on, on physical exam. Syncope, as you already pointed out, is a very, very potent prognostic indicator. You know, functional class, as crude as it is, it's just talking to a patient and kind of giving them a number based on what makes them short of breath. But it's very, very prognostic in every registry, every clinical trial. Um, some information on CPAT, peak VO2, and VEVCO2 slope are both prognostic indicators. Biomarkers, as you've already mentioned, a simple blood test, very, very prognostic in terms of pulmonary hypertension. You know, echo, I wish we had more data on echo. Um, it's just hard to have objective assessments of right ventricular function, hard to collect that in the context of registries where echoes are done at, you know, at various different places. So we don't have as much information on echo as I would like, but certainly the size of the right atrium um, the TAPC over systolic PA pressure, this was added new in 2022 based on some literature. So that gives an indication of coupling of, you know, RV function versus RV afterload and the presence of a pericardial effusion. That's a poor prognostic indicator. MR, get really great data for MR, from MR. It's just a little bit less commonly used because of the complexity and expense, but certainly RVEF, the um, stroke volume index and the RV and systolic volume index are all important prognostic indicators. And one thing that I always stress on hemodynamics, it's not the PA pressure that's important. It's how the right ventricle is dealing with that PA pressure. So the important prognostic indicators on right heart catheterization are right atrial pressure, cardiac index, stroke volume index, and SVO2, really all indicators of how the right ventricle is functioning. Yeah, so, you know, the mean PA pressure, if they're low, could be early disease or could be very late disease. We have to look at the whole picture. That's right, because as the RV fails, maybe it can't generate pressure. It cannot, the yeah. Mean- the PA pressure could actually go down. That's a really great point. So, you know, after having this low intermediate and high risk, knowing that that intermediate range is a, you know, it's a big group of patients, that mortality that spans five to 20%, which is a big range. uh, There was some additional work done uh, over the past couple of years, looking at dividing that intermediate risk group into intermediate low and intermediate high. And the data was originally generated from Compara, but then validated in the French registry using a simple non-invasive assessment. So the three strata of um, assessment with just functional class, six minute hall walk and biomarker, just taking those three things uh, and coming up with a score can put a patient into low, intermediate, low, intermediate, high or high risk. And they they really are very different categories, particularly if you look at what the prognosis is after that first risk assessment. You've started therapy, you see how they move. If the patient gets into the low risk category, they're going to do well. If they're intermediate low, it's, you know, it's, it's, better than the others, better than intermediate high and high, but really not as good as intermediate low, that patient may need more. Uh, But the other important point is intermediate high is almost as bad as high, and those patients need much more aggressive therapy. 
So this is how to calculate that for risk strata. You get points assigned for various uh, criteria within functional class, six-minute hall walk, and biomarker. So either NT, ProBNP, or BNP. So you get one, two, three, or four points, depending on where those values fall. And then you divide by three and you come up with, and, and you round to the nearest integer basically. And then you come up with low, intermediate, low, intermediate, high, or high risk. So it wanna, you know, I think it's really important to do an objective risk assessment every time we see a patient in clinic. You know, in our clinic, we actually have a little flow sheet and in the note, it spits out both uh, the four strata and the reveal light too. So that's, you know, it's really important to do that objectively. But I think it's also important to look at other things that we take into consideration as we treat the patient, such as their age and comorbidities, such as their RV function. Tell me a little bit about how you approach risk assessment in your clinic. Yes, Val, it's a very, very valid point. And we have to put all these tools that we have available together. The risk assessment, the imaging with echocardiographic function of the right ventricle, and then lastly, how the patient feels. And all these put together, if we don't think that that particular patient is at low risk for PAH, and, you know, we have to take into account the comorbidities, which are a huge amount, very, very important in many of our patients. But if we think that they're not at low risk because the PAH, PAH is not well controlled, talk to other people, refer the patient to the center or to your colleague because they may need more help and they may benefit from more or additional or tweaking or, you know, other therapies that are available yeah, because and we do have available therapies. Yeah, that's a common scenario. Patients aren't getting to low risk. Um, but their treatment's not being escalated. So we do need exactly. to be aggressive about that. I think there's also instances where the patients do calculate to low risk on an objective tool, but I'm still worried about them. You know, they yes. have patients who walk well because they're otherwise healthy, but they have really dysfunctional right ventricles. I'm still worried about those patients. Yes, yes. So the risk assessment with the numbers that they gave us um, are very helpful. However, it's not all in all and you have to put things in perspective and add the imaging and add the function of the patient to get a better understanding of how well the PAH is controlled once you start therapy. Yeah, there's a lot of science, but there's a little bit of art too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we are available, centers and experts, we are available to talk to you, to answer questions and to help out. Um, there's a lot of excitement when we talk about treatment of pulmonary hypertension. So what are we aiming for when we treat these patients? Yes, that's a very good question, Val. So we have to talk to our patients and understand, do they want to live longer? Do they want to improve their quality of life and have, be more active, increase their exercise capacity? Uh, uh, we as physicians 
because we understand pulmonary physiology, we love to improve hemodynamics. Um, and that is what we hope is it translates to improve survival, quality of life and increase exercise. But we also have to take into account to make sure that the therapies that we uh, prescribe have less symptoms, they're very well tolerated and what I think we need to do is to prevent clinical worsening, but also not only as, uh, you know, prevent hospitalizations, which is a big, big, big thing that associated with, with worse prognosis, but also to make them feel better. Yeah, I always describe it as we need to balance their symptoms of the disease with the side effects of the medication, because there's no free lunch, right? All of our medicines have side effects and you're really looking for that balance. Even if you take an aspirin, you can have side effects, right, Val? A hundred percent. Yes. So when we think about treating our patients, you know, first we want to make sure that the diagnosis is correct. You know, we've talked about the pitfalls of diagnosis. There's some general and supportive measures um, and then, of course, we want to know, particularly for the idiopathic heritable and drug and toxin induced, whether or not they're vasoreactive at the time of that initial right heart cath. Because if so, they may be patients that would respond to calcium channel blockers. So let's look at the treatments that we have available for our patients with uh, PAH. They, uh, of course, for the past many, many years, target the three pathways, the endothelin pathway, uh, nitric oxide pathway, and the prostacycline pathway. And then we very often use uh, therapies that act on these pathways in combination to achieve our goals. So in a patient who is a non-vasoreactive, we classify them, if you ask me, Val, high risk or everybody else. If it's high risk patient, we have to start infusion therapies with prostacyclines and then add a PD-5 and an ERA on top of it. So it's going to be triple therapy unless they're really clear contraindications for these uh, therapies. And everybody else, if we look and in general, sh they should go on to oral combination therapy with an ERA and PD-5 inhibitor, unless there are very specific contraindications. Now, of course, with any therapies, there are side effects and possible complications that are depicted here. And then who the prescriber of these therapies should be aware of these potential side effects. Yeah. So, I mean, Iwan, I, I, you just went through the first step, which, you know, everyone ruminates on and focuses on. But I actually think the most important step of the algorithm is the next step. It's reassessing the patient after three months or so to see if what you did achieved a low risk status. And remember, that's the goal that less than 5% one year mortality is the goal. So, if whatever decision you just made that you went through, you reassess the patient and they're at low risk, 
that's great. You continue that therapy and you continue to continuously reevaluate them. But if they are not low risk, if they're still at intermediate or high risk, you need to do something else. You need to escalate their therapy. You need to add a third agent if you just started with two. Or if they're on a parental prostacycline, you know, you need to think about lung transplantation if they haven't responded. So the key is continuously reassessing them and making sure you're doing everything you can to get them to low risk status. Now, the 2022 ESC ERS guidelines just kind of tweaks that a little bit. Um, this is the algorithm from that. They pulled out to the right on this side patients with cardiopulmonary comorbidities and perhaps being a little bit more ginger in those patients and starting with one therapy. And, you know, this has generated a lot of discussion, Iwana. And, you know, I'd like your viewpoint on this. I, I kind of take this with a grain of salt because, you know, this is a wide variety of patients. This could be a 50-year-old woman with hypertension, but who has familial PAH and a PVR of 10. And I, I don't care that she has the cardiopulmonary comorbidity of hypertension. I'm treating her on the left side of the algorithm. I'm treating her aggressively. Right. Um, or it could be the 75-year-old woman with hypertension, diabetes, and obesity who has a PVR of 3.2. You know, yeah, that patient, I'm just going to give monotherapy to. So it, it's a wide range. So, you know, the algorithm ha has a clear dichotomy. However, in real life, in our clinic, this is like a gray zone. And I would, emphasize that on the right-hand side, the patient with significant cardiopulmonary comorbidity should maybe treated a little bit differently, but everybody else should be treated if they have PAH like a PAH patient and give the benefit of the doubt. But when in doubt as a physician or as a healthcare practitioner, talk to your close center with your experts in the area because there's absolutely a, 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 so important to bounce back ideas to really make sure you classify the patient correctly so you can give the patient the best treatment. Yeah, and so in terms of the rest of the algorithm, that first step is very much like the algorithm that Iwana just went through from the last world symposium, but then the follow-up introduces the four risk strata uh, approach. And so low risk, that's great. Continue what they're doing. Intermediate low risk that maybe you need to escalate, but you don't need to go straight to a parenteral therapy. And then intermediate high really falls in the same category as high risk here that you need to add an infusion therapy and or evaluate for lung transplantations. Yes. So, and then in addition to that, you as a cardiologist, I'm sure you're on my side when I say, think about adding to the risk stratification, the information from a follow-up echocardiogram, because it adds on to understanding how you control the disease. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, just to re-emphasize that you know, intermediate is a wide, wide category. Some of the yeah. patients on the intermediate high risk side need more aggressive therapy. There's even some data from the French registry to suggest that intermediate risk patients who were treated with triple combination therapy did better than those who were treated with dual or monotherapy. And so it really is 
is just the point. There's much more than the risk status that we need to think about as we make our treatment decisions. Absolutely. And then more than the more than the more of the risk uh, stratification is the collaboration to decide what's the best treatment for our patients um, and 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 put together between different specialties and different providers the uh, you know presence of comorbidities, the stratification score, the RV functioning, the side effect profile, and 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 all these uh, aspects to deliver the best cocktail of treatment for our patient. So let's talk about new targets. I mean, we do have amazing therapies that have been developed for the past twenty some years, right, Val? But we are not stopping there uh, because we have not cured the disease. So they are actually new targets for treating pulmonary hypertension. From circulating hormones, we are looking at epigenetic alterations, growth factors that stimulate the growth of the cells in the pulmonary vasculature, also vasoactive and inflammatory factors, ion channels, and a host of other molecules and pathways that are under development and under study. So the next uh, pathway that I would like to talk about is a pathway that was discovered, uh, well, more than 20 years ago when the BMPR2 mutation was discovered first in the familial PAH patients and then also in a large percentage of idiopathic PAH patients. And this BMP acts in the balance of, of, uh, of, of within the TGF beta superfamily, it has an anti-proliferative uh, uh, arm that counterbalances the pro-proliferative arm uh, stimulated by activins, if you look in this very nice cartoon. So in pH patients, in many pH patients, the BMP arm is uh, uh, underrepresented, whether it's a genetic mutation or, or not, it seems to be low. So the pro-proliferative uh, activity of uh, the activins are uh, acting up. So, so Tatercept is a molecule that binds to the uh, receptors of the activins and inhibits the effect of the activins, how uh, eventually counterbalancing the low BMP uh, activities and rebalancing this uh, pro and anti-proliferative pathways. So phase two trial and now phase three trial called STELLAR uh, of sotatercept in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension have been highly su successful um, and it showed an improvement uh, in the active arm in patients treated with sotatercept in six minute walk distance compared with placebo at 24 weeks. Yeah, it went on the six minute hall walk was the primary endpoint and it, it was positive. And this 
I think it's also important to remember that this is a highly prevalent pretreated population. These patients had the disease for, for many years, eight or so years on average. You know, 60% of them were on combination therapy, triple combination therapy. About a third of them were on parenteral prostacyclins. And there was still this difference in the six-minute hall walk. But the other impressive part of this trial is not only was the primary endpoint positive, eight of the nine secondary endpoints were positive, including the very important time to death or clinical worsening. Really remarkable difference there. Uh, and the drug was relatively well tolerated. As we were talking earlier, you know, every drug has some side effects, but the discontinuations related to the drug and the serious AEs were, were not very high with this therapy. So um, this is currently under FDA review, and it, it is, you know, very exciting to have a new pathway for our patients with PAH. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a very, very good point, uh, Val, that you made that the majority of patients were heavily treated already with the current pH therapies, and they still showed significant improvement. And, and many of these patients were already on infusion prostacycline therapies, not only on oral therapies. So I think this is a pathway that really needs careful attention, and uh, we will wait for the FDA results. But saltatercept has also been looked at in children with pH um, in a phase two trial, also in newly diagnosed really pulmonary hypertension patients. Um, as you mentioned in Stellar, most patients had been diagnosed with an average of nine years of pH. So is there a role of sotatercept in early diagnosis and treatment uh, of pulmonary hypertension? The phase three Hyperion study will hopefully answer this question. The uh, long-term follow-up Soteria study will gather all patients who have been exposed to sotatercept. And there are uh, interim data that will be presented soon. Um, and uh, also, uh, how about severe pH patients who are already on infusions, who are functional class three, four, really, really sick? Do they benefit from kind of like a rescue therapy with sotatercept? The Zenith trial will answer this question. Um, and then lastly, let's look at the most common cause of pulmonary hypertension patients with left heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So diastolic heart failure, pH, um, our uh, patients are being studied uh, in a, a phase two trial called Cadence to see if sotatercept has a role of treating this type of very different pulmonary hypertension. Let's talk about other emerging therapies for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, Relinapag, which is a novel uh, IP receptor agonist, uh, has been uh, is being in under study in a phase three called Advance. The next one is Imatinib. Uh, in a uh, phase three impactful trial, uh, Imatinib has uh, been coming back. It had uh, very interesting positive results in a very old uh, couple of trials 
before, uh, but this is an inhaled formulation that hopefully will decrease the risk of side effects. Serolutinib is an inhaled a growth factor signaling uh, molecule that is being currently studied in a phase three trial. But also metformin that has such an impact on metabolic pathways is being looked at uh, pulmonary hypertension. And lastly, spironolactone as an aldosterone antagonist that's been used for so many years in both um, in, in all, all forms of heart failure, uh, it will be uh, looked at in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Yeah, Iwana, that was just a wonderful overview of some of the active clinical investigations going on. And I think it's so exciting. You know, we've had these same three pathways for 20 years, whatever. Um, and, you know, the last agent was approved in 2015. It's been almost a decade since we've had something new. So it's really exciting to not have just something else new, but to have it work in a totally different way. So, you know, we, you know, we, we've come a long way. Our patients are doing better, but we still lose too many of them. Tell me a little bit about how you think the treatment of pulmonary hypertension will change in the future with some of these novel agents. Well, Val, it's a very good question. And, you know, so Tatercept is definitely a very potent drug with good efficacy. And uh, we, we are awaiting the FDA, uh, you know, decisions. Uh, however, there are other uh, forms, uh, other molecules that may add to our current therapies. And I think, uh, you know, multiple uh, combination therapies attacking different pathways is probably going to be much more impactful for our patients than the only three that uh, we have now. They're great, but I think we have a lot of room to improve for many of our patients to decrease the risk of death and improve their life and as well as their well-being. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And the, the agents that we have now, the three pathways that we target now, you know, there, there may be some chronic remodeling that goes on, but they're, they're mostly vasodilators. And I think some of the more novel agents that you just reviewed, you know, for example, cetatercept and imatinib and serolutinib, you know, there is some preclinical data that suggests they might you know, they might remodel, they might help, you know, promote atop apoptosis or reduce proliferation. And, and there might be some remodeling, there's, you know, some, you know, preliminary evidence of that in the pulmonary vasculature with some of the sub studies from uh, the serolutinib trials. Certainly, it looks like there's an impact in the RV in the um, echo sub studies from the cetater sub trials. So I, I'm really excited that they may do a lot more for our patients in addition to the current agents that, that are mostly uh, vasodilators. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, thinking about our patients who are already on triple therapy on infusions, in whom you do a right heart catheterization, they still have significant hemodynamic impairment. You know that there's a lot of the pulmonary vasculature that is actually still suffering. So there's a lot of room for us to improve. And I hope our you know, novel molecules that are under study will prove uh, uh, if 
if uh, efficient and and it will prove that there will be very good tools for us to use to improve our patients. Yeah. And, and, you know, also considering that balance, you know, we were talking, it's always important to balance symptoms of disease, side effects, and, you know, also risks of delivery systems, right? And, you know, I think it's too soon to tell, but, you know, is it possible that, you know, if it's demonstrated that cetatercept might be more useful earlier in Hyperion, you know, could, could we treat more patients with less less lines, less pumps, which all have their risks and side effects. My latest patient, they just called me. She lost her Hickman line. Um, and, you know, she's on infusion therapy and she's doing well. However, she lost her line and I, you know, with no trauma or anything. So you run into these uh, problems with, with the delivery systems that we have now for advanced pH patients that hopefully in the future we will, may not need to. In summary, PAH is a very complex disease. You do not need and you should not treat as as uh, as 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 a, as a person as a single healthcare uh, provider. You need a team because you need to understand the lungs functions. You need to understand the heart function. You need to understand the severity of the disease and their tools to assess that with the risk scores, but also with understanding better the uh, echocardiographic parameters that your cardiologist can help you, and then decide the best treatment um, uh, for PAH reg- uh, re- after assessing all this. Do not, please do not forget about chronic thromboembolic Pulmonary hypertension, as Val said, a simple VQ scan will give you an answer whether you should go through that pathway or not. And then, of course, the uh, the left heart disease uh, that is very, very common that can cause pulmonary hypertension, you need to sort it out whether it's group one or group two. Yeah, Iwana, you know, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I learn something every time I listen to you. And, you know, I, I want to thank you for joining me. And, and I hope the audience has found this program useful as you continue to care for patients with pulmonary hypertension. Iwana, thanks for being here and contributing your insights, your very uh, valuable insights to this discussion. It's been really fun chatting with you. Val, always a pleasure. And thank you, the audience, for listening to us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UBN 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merkin Company Incorporated.